This week I picked up a, a book. Well, not this week. Yesterday I picked up a book and I was going to the gym and I said, no, let's see if I can read and walk at the same time, you know? I want to see if I could do two things at the same time. So I got the book and I started reading it. It was called uh, Eschatological Discipleship. Now, just a little, you know, minor book, you know? And uh, as I'm reading it, I'm going, whoa, this is good. It's about discipleship. That's exactly what we're talking about today. Because... When you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not just knowing the facts. I, I would probably go around this room and many of you would know certain facts and all of that kind of stuff. That's good. But it's taking those facts and actually walking a life that is emblematic of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's called Christ-likeness. That's what he's called us to is Christ-likeness. It, it, in matter of fact, you see in Matthew uh, 28... Uh, Jesus says, uh, all who are, uh, no, go and uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse, 29, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. Folks, there isn't a place, as a matter of fact, you go to the end of Ecclesiastes, same thing. You hear the word, you do something about it. For, to sit there in a doldrum, to sit there and not be moving and grit, get, growing closer to him, there's something wrong with that. And, and that's just a warning from your pastor because he cares about your soul. He cares about your ultimate, where you're going to be. It's not how much knowledge we have. Jesus is not going to give us a quiz when we're at the pearly gate. He's going to say, how did you love your wife? How did you love your husband? How did you do this? And I don't even think he's going to do that because he's already going to know. (laughs) Acts 16.30 says this, And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a great question. Have you ever had anyone that you witnessed to ask that question? I have. I I, I told the guy, please, let me just recover from that question. (laughs) Because it doesn't happen very often. It says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas answered in verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, again, it's not knowing the facts of Jesus Christ. The wording in the Greek text attests to the fact that salvation is completed, that it's done. There's no more crosswork, if you want to put it that way. No more works that need to be done, novenas, you know, uh, Hail Marys, whatever else. The way of salvation is accomplished. And Jesus Christ did it on the cross. He spilled his blood to cover our sin. The way of salvation is quite simple. Believe in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. That's a simple gospel. It's not... It's not difficult to come to that conclusion of what it is. The salvation that's offered is recognizing him as holy, holy, holy. And you're not. And you're not. And you need him continuously. That's the way of salvation. The Bible teaches that salvation comes not by works, but only in those who genuinely, now please 
Make sure you understand that word. It has a lot of impact there. Genuinely trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I have, as a counseling pastor here at Grace Church, had people in my office that couldn't believe that Jesus Christ could forgive them. I, I had a woman who wouldn't leave her home, okay? Uh, and her kids had to find a way to get to school because she couldn't leave, because she couldn't believe that Jesus Christ could forgive her past. I heard her past. I got to tell you, it was pretty wicked. But then I reminded her, Romans 8, 1, therefore now uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, he's taking care of all of it. You've been cleansed. It's hard to believe for some of you. (laughs) How could Jesus take care of all my sin? Folks, he took care of the sin in the past and he took care of the sin in the future. Isn't that fabulous? The Bible tells us salvation is a gift. And it's a gift from God. Would you turn with me to Titus chapter 3? It's freely given by His grace and that all our sins are forgiven at the point of regeneration when we come to know Jesus Christ. So in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds. In other words, you cannot work for it. By the way, there are some Protestants trying to work for their salvation They're already saved, but they're still working for it for some reason. I don't know why, uh, because their their mindset is incorrect. You cannot do it. Your works will not save you. You do your works out of gratitude for what God has already done. That's what you do. He's already done, accomplished the work. And you're just thankful. Why would he save me? You're overcome with love. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's done. Nothing else needs to be done. But the Roman Catholic Church, of where I spent lots and lots of years, don't get it. They really, really don't. You cannot work for your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation because it has already been completed for you by God. This is what the Holy Bible says. And so I say to my former friend, well, they're still friends, Catholics, do you believe? And they would say, I have to go to Mass. I have to pray to Mary. I have to venerate the saints. When the Bible tells us that a person is saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, that means he has dealt with the past and the future sins. All sin is covered by the blood of Christ. It's covered by his going to the cross. Let's turn to another scripture, 1 John. To see what happens with our sin, we have to understand what happens with our sin. I, I had a woman come to me once who used to be a Playboy bunny. What? Yeah. Here at Great Community Church. She found it very difficult that God could forgive her for doing those things, being that. And I said, yes, she was with her husband. Yes, he can forgive you. There is no sin, no, no 
attitude, no lifestyle that he cannot forgive. I always used to say Osama bin Laden, if he had come to Christ, could still be saved. Even though he sent planes into the you know, World Trade Center and all of that kind of stuff. 1 John 1, 1.8 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You have to recognize, first of all, that you're a sinner. You have to recognize that you are bad. You cannot be doing what they normally do, what most people do, is say, I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I spend five minutes with my family at least a week. You know, I mean, I've I've heard these things. No, you're not as bad. You're really bad. Verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That incredible truth that God is giving us there and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just some, but all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and he his word is not in us. So if we say, no, I, I'm okay, I, I don't sin. I've had people say that to me. I'm not a sinner. Well, it depends upon your category of sin, obviously. And in verses, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I love when John says that. You know why? He has such a heart for these people. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's trying to call them to not be sinners. To give up their sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if you sin, well, he knows they're going to sin. That's why he's giving them that hope that Jesus Christ is there to plead their case before the King of Heaven. Folks, it's taken care of, but that's not what the Roman Catholic Church believes, even though it's Scripture. Now, I have had Roman Catholics say to me that they know Jesus Christ because that's all you need to do is to know Jesus Christ and be saved. They would say that they know about him like many others. They may even know some of the Gospels better than you do of what's going to happen next and all of that kind of thing. They, they, there may even some people that you may meet that would say that Jesus is a great man, that he was a wonderful prophet, that he was a very kind person, all of those kinds of things. But that's only knowledge. That's only knowledge. That book that I told you that I read talks about that. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is not just to have the knowledge. You don't need to know just about Jesus, but you have to do. You have to be Christ-like obedient. I could say, you know what, folks? I know Joe Biden, but I forgot. (laughs) James 2.19 said this, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Do you know the demons know about Jesus a whole lot better than we do? I mean, they were with him a long time. The demons know more about Jesus Christ than we do because they have seen him. They have been with him. They tried to destroy him whichever way they could. They know that God, that he is God, and that they know that he is the 
ability to save anybody he chooses. To really know Jesus is to put your trust and faith that he is the only way of salvation. And, And folks, I will say that over and over and over again in this message. And the reason I do is because the Roman Catholic does not believe those same thoughts, doesn't believe those same things. There's a whole segment of humanity that believes that Jesus, to a degree, adds to their understanding a system of works, righteousness, that, that he needs to, you need to keep doing more because Jesus hasn't done enough. I mean, what does that say? What does that say? Jesus has completed the work of salvation, over, done with. And his not completing that work has never been disputed successfully. No Roman Catholic apologist has ever been able to prove it using the Bible. Jesus is the redeemer of mankind, and he has set believers free by his perfect work at the cross. The Roman Catholic Church has abandoned biblical teaching, and that's the problem. They they have abandoned it for other things. They've abandoned it for tradition. They've abandoned the, on saving, uh, the, the idea of saving grace and substituted a sacramental system. We looked at that last week, the sacraments. But that's just what their substitute is, is the sacraments, because you need to do something now. They're saying you need to add to what Jesus did on the cross. That Jesus was not enough. That's blasphemy, folks. That is utter blasphemy to say that Jesus was enough. Then why even send him to the cross? There's no reason to send him then. Why have the Son of God go and spill his blood for maybe getting you into heaven? In the Canon 4 of the Council of Trent in 1547, we're going back a little ways. I think that's before even Dave... I know he said something, but I can't hear, so I'm not going <laughs> to. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God, through faith alone, the grace of justification, through all the sacraments, through all the sacraments, and not indeed necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. In other words, be condemned. And folks, you know, I'm just reading this now and I'm thinking about it through all the sacraments. So you can't get holy orders and holy matrimony at the same time. <laughs> just think about it. You can't be a priest and you can't get married. And so they, they just don't even, even think through those things. In other words, if you believe in salvation through justification by faith alone, you are anathema. You're condemned. I, I, it's hope hard to believe. If you were on the cross, let me just ask this question. If you were on the cross next to Jesus, do you think that you'd be contemplating whether you should be baptized or not? Do you think that you'd be uh, wondering if you need to go to Mass to be saved? Or did you need to find a priest and make your confession? I don't think you're going to be doing any of those things. But Jesus said to that man, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what he said. In the system of the Roman Catholic salvation, it is a means of grace, but not 
by the grace and mercy of the Savior. It's the means of grace of someone else, Mary, someone else, a saint, but not of Jesus. How can you deflect from Christ Almighty to these other things? That's how you achieve heaven, is by believing in the grace that's given to you by saints and Mary and everything else that you do. And so that's where they fail completely. Friends, if anything outside Jesus Christ for salvation, why would Jesus need to go to the cross? That's what I always have to ask myself. Why would he have to go if he needs something else? What I want to do now is take a look at a few of the things that they say you need to be able to make it to heaven. Uh, Who doesn't make it to heaven automatically? They say people who commit... um, uh, mortal sins, okay? If you've been a Roman Catholic, you know what those are. Those are the really bad ones, okay? Then you have venial sins, okay? You can be led into heaven because you, you've done some venial sins, and this is how you pay it off, indulgences. You do indulgences. You can receive an indulgence because um, there are certain Roman Catholic uh, church, certain men, women, who are called saints, or those who are blessed because of their complete devotion to God, and, and they did that unto death, and so you can call upon them. And, and, and when I was growing up, there was like St. Thomas or, or St. William. You, could you imagine somebody would call a St. William? Uh, I really felt bad for that guy. Anyway, but it, it, you, you could call them a saint, and they've done certain things, and you could pray to them, and you would get grace from them. Why? Because they had done such good things that they set this amount of grace in heaven for you. That's the treasury that they have. It's stored in a treasury that they have. That's the extra stuff. They got into heaven, but now they're going to give it to others. And this is what it also says, that the Catholics, at the discretion of the Roman Catholic Pope, can give the the treasury of merit to others. And so that's what they have. They have made deposits there, you know, like you do in the bank and there's others that make withdrawals, <laughs> like your taxes. and you know. In most cases, these merits of grace are given to those individuals who make service to the church, pay a certain sum of money as a substitute for their good works. Sacred signs of the church, like the Mass or, or saying the Rosary, you could do that alone on your own. Stations of the Cross. When I was a little guy, I used to see these people going around and doing the Stations of the Cross. When I got to Israel, I looked for the Stations of the Cross. There was no such thing. But that's what they had invented. They put up these, I think it's 14 stops, and you go through them, and, and I'm going... Well, if you do that, you get a certain number of days off of hell, or I should say purgatory. Observing the holy days, blessing your palms, and I don't mean these palms, but the palms of the, that they would give out on Easter. Um, how about this? Catholic priests used to go around blessing cars. Yeah, yeah, they don't do it with electric cars, though. Um, <laughs> Um, they would bless animals. They would bless um, all kinds of things that would then be in your home. You've got now a blessed... Could you imagine having a blessed dog in your house? Whew. Everybody's looking for that. All of these kinds of things, going to a, um, a, a place where there is a, um, a, a 
where you could worship where you're a shrine, like you go to Fatima or something like that. Especially, you can get an indulgence for a sum of money. I know a man who, when he died, Roman Catholic, he had no children, his wife had already passed, and he gave $1 million to the Roman Catholic Church. He must have been really bad. No, that's not going to get you out of purgatory. How could that be? That your money would pay for what Jesus already did? You see, this indulgence means a kindness or favor granted another. As you can see, the death of Christ on the cross in the Roman Catholic system does not completely pay for the penalty of your sin. Your sin is still there. You are able, through the merits of others, to receive an atonement for your sin. Maybe even your own merits to make up for what Jesus could not do. So if you work hard enough, you can get that put towards your account. Put it in your bank, so to speak. So let's give a short history of indulgences. Indulgences were introduced in the uh, 11th century and the doctrine of the treasury of the merit and indulgences did not develop until the 13th century. Uh, the historian Philip Schaff said that by the 13th century, the indulgence was in regular use to the point that one buying the indulgence even believed the guilt of their sin was removed. More and more popes would offer indulgences in order to raise money for building projects or to promote such things as the Crusades. They needed to pay for the Crusades because you need to raise money to fight a war. Eventually, indulgences got to the point where a certain amount of money could buy a person's release from purgatory. The claim to indulgences cannot find its source in the Bible or even in early church history. This is a way the church became horribly corrupt, both to the popes and the people. Well, the popes saw indulgences as a means of gaining more money. That's what they were looking for. When I had gone to Italy in um, 2002, and I I went to the Vatican, and I went to the church that's there, and I I was just horrified with all the gold, silver, marble, and an excess of wealth that I saw there. I was just... I was just overwhelmed, and I started getting loud. This is what my parents broke their back for, to send money to this, to build this? And um, eventually Donna said, I think you need to get quiet. Somebody's going to come along. <laughs> uh, it, was, it just is overwhelming because I know what my parents had to sacrifice to get to do that. And it didn't get them anything in a sense. There's another way that you can pay uh, that you don't go to hell is through purgatory. Purgatory comes from the Latin purgate, meaning to clean or to purify. What is purgatory? Listen to this. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, quote, all who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified, 
are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So in other words, a person who still has sin, they would call that venial sin, as I said before, they die, they go into purgatory. And then while they're in purgatory, others pray for them, or even the punishment that's going on in purgatory pays for those venial sins that they have. Um, a mortal sin would be like committing murder or something like that. So there's, there's a difference there. Uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia says purgatory, quote, is a place of, or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction due their transgression. Notice who's paying the satisfaction. I can never pay the satisfaction for my sins. One sin separates me from God completely, thoroughly. But that's what it's saying here, that you can somehow pay and, and take care of, wipe out. And it doesn't do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. You see, he's the perfect man who lived the perfect life that shed his blood for the imperfect person. That's what is going on here. And the Catholic Church doesn't even see it. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I want to make sure I leave myself plenty of time here because I do want to get through this and take questions. But Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and it says this, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that great? Call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Notice, um, Jesus was chosen to go to death for you, okay? Predetermined plan of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus Christ is that picture. When we die, we don't go to purgatory if you're a believer. You have what is called eternal life. That's what you're given. Purgatory found entrance into the church in the 4th century. It started to be talked about due to the influx, and this is what happened. They were taking all of these unconverted pagans and naming them as being in the church because they were not careful. Today we have uh, lots of church people going for church membership. It's amazing how many folks are coming and asking questions. And we sometimes question a person whether they're truly saved. They don't like it, but why would we want to just let all kinds of pagans, and I mean that, unbelievers into the church? We want to make sure that we, the church is still pure. That's why we do that. And, and it's not because we're, we hurt the person. I, I think in some cases, you know what? It's good for them to have to go to the FOF class or to do something else. That's what they need to do before they can come into the church. So, purgatory found entrance into the church in the 4th century. Those un, uh, 
unconverted pagans were there. There also, at that same time, was something called prayers for the dead. Folks, you cannot pray for a dead person. They're dead. Wherever they are, that's where they are. But I, as a Roman Catholic, when I was young, would pray for my grandmother. I would pray for my grandfather. I'd pray for all of those that I knew that had died because I wanted them to get out of purgatory. That doesn't do anything. You see, Constantine declared that they were saved. The pagans were saved. And he wanted to have them part of his church. Well, they're going to listen to me. They're going to listen to the church. These so-called Christians brought some of their pagan beliefs, and that's what happened. It became polluted with those pagan beliefs. You know, the, the elders, again, this last elders meeting, went through our doctrinal statement. And, and we're looking at it. What is good with it? What's needing to be changed with it? How, how, what about the, 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 the use of language, the certain language that changes? You know, that happens over time. And we changed some of the doctrinal statement. It's going to happen for the college and the seminary and, and grace to you, all of that. Because that's necessary. You need to have a good doctrinal statement, not one that has holes in it. The Catholic Church has all kinds of holes. So those pagans brought those pagan beliefs into the church. Pope Gregory the Great solidified its belief in 600 A.D., basing the doctrine of, on his visions and revelations of uh, purgatorial fire. He believed it because he had visions. Any of you ever have visions? Saturday morning I had a vision. I was asleep and I saw this big mosquito come and bite me. <laughs> and it woke me up. Now, I'm, I'm just being funny here, folks. That's the kind of vision it is. You, you, you imagine something there. Matter of fact, I even heard it. It was funny. It's the first time I ever heard a mosquito when I was sleeping. Anyway. The Council of Florence pronounced it an infallible doctrine and reaffirmed, and it was reaffirmed at Trent. Notice it's, it's just the doctrine that is being uh, sworn to by a council and then affirmed, not going back to Scripture to see what Scripture has to say. One of the ways that a Roman Catholic congregant can make their way to heaven is through purgatory. Spend enough time in purgatory. Then you can get to heaven. When the normal route of salvation is insufficient, a Roman Catholic has the opportunity through their stay in purgatory of making it to heaven. In a sense, they have done your time. And, and folks, if that were possible, why would you need Jesus at all? In a sense, okay, folks, this is saying everybody's going to heaven because you don't need Jesus. You just spend a lot of time in purgatory. You'll eventually get there as long as you weren't a really bad person on earth. You paid your taxes and all those things. When you have not gathered enough merit of, or grace through the sacraments, through the indulgences, you have to suffer for a limited time in purgatory to purge that requirement. I don't know as a Roman Catholic what would have happened. When I was in high school, I started figuring these things out and said, this is wrong, and I stopped going to church. We got married. It was the first time I went to church, and then after that, I didn't go to church anymore. 
That's what happens for a lot of Roman Catholics. They sort of abandon the faith because they see there's something wrong. You have to look long. You have to look hard to find anything mentioned in the Protestant Bible concerning purgatory. You can't see it anywhere. However, the Roman Catholic Church did find something in the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is what the Roman Catholic Church had added, okay? And they found a, a passage in 2 Maccabees. Okay, so I know all of you have it memorized. But in 2 Maccabees 12, that, um, that they use as a, a reason to have purgatory, that it's there. That they, get, they sort of uh, get their doctrine of purgatory from that. This apocryphal book was added to the Roman Catholic Bible at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. Notice as 1500s after Christ left the earth, you know. But that's when it, that's when it appeared. And, um, and it basically is a wrong passage to use even there. I've read it, folks. Uh, and when I read it, it's saying that the sin of idolatry could be worked through in purgatory. Well, guess what? The sin of idolatry is a mortal sin. So even in the Roman Catholic Church, it, it doesn't add up. Under Roman Catholic doctrine, idolatry is a mortal sin which causes someone to go to hell with no opportunity for salvation, never an opportunity for salvation. They also then use, because you know that one pretty much has holes in it, is 1 Corinthians 3.15. They use that. And that has been used by the Roman Catholic Church to say that Paul is expressing the incompleteness of the atonement of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Folks, the context is clear. It is about rewards. It has nothing to do with the atonement, not further punishment. All that does not glorify God will be burned up. If you serve the Lord, you try to serve the Lord, and, and you're not doing it with the right heart, the right mind, and all of that, it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and it's going to be burned up. I, I had a young man come to me years and years and years ago, pastor. I serve the Lord, but I don't know if I'm doing it for him or for me. That's a struggle. You're a young guy, you're up here, you're playing the guitar, you're singing, you're whatever it is. Am I doing it for the Lord or am I doing it for me? And I said, well, let's look at that passage. We went through it and I said, you know what? You're not going to be able to figure it out, which you're doing for who. But just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. Serve the Lord. Keep your mind set on the things above, not on the things of the earth. That's what you have to do. It's not about what you do. It's about what he receives. And look, if it's wood, hay, and stubble, fine. It burns up, but you're not. He enjoyed that, that he wouldn't burn. So, the Context is clear. It's about rewards. It's not about punishment, so keep that in mind. Historically, the tradition of purgatory did not come into usage until the 6th century regularly. The apostolic fathers, Irenaeus and Justin Modern, never ever had an indication of the doctrine in their writings. All existing papers and documents from the early church 
including inscriptions on the tombs and burial places and all of those kind of things that you can go back to actually look at, never indicate any belief in purgatory. They talk about the person being in heaven. Now, folks, Protestants even have a problem. I once had a man come to me, ask me to do his brother's funeral. I didn't know his brother. I asked about his brother, and I'm hearing from different people. And the man said to me, my brother was a Christian, and I want you to declare that to everybody. And I said to him, I said, look, my declaring that is not going to put him in heaven. I, I will not do something that I don't know. I said, there's certain people I can say he's a believer. But for your brother, I cannot. And this is what I said. I said, if your brother were here, this is what he would want me to tell you. That's what I can do. If you were here, this is what he would want you to know. Because that would be the truth. But I can't put him in heaven. I can't put anybody in heaven. And so, never any indication of purgatory being a doctrine. The roots of the doctrine of purgatory can be attributed to Greek philosophy and are in, were introduced, <laughs> listen to this, by Origen and Clement of Alexandria. Now, Origen, for some of you, uh, I mentioned last week, was considered a heretic, and I mentioned that last week. Well, the Roman Catholic Church even considered him a heretic, so why would they do that? Origen's teaching on purgatory influenced Augustine to some degree, who promoted it and probably had the greatest stimulus to the subsequent belief of it. Eventually, it was pronounced church dogma. Listen to this year that it was uh, pronounced church dogma, 1438. Way down the road. Way down the road. Purgatory is best described as a temporary hell. A temporary hell with the idea that sins are being punished. According to Vatican II, it, is, it described purgatory this way, quote, as a place where the souls of the dead may make expiation in the next life through fire and torments or purifying punishments. That the person is making expiation for their sins? I'll say that anywhere in the Bible that I can do that. I, I pray that nobody would hold on to that. Roman Catholic theology teaches that if you have a loved one in purgatory, there are special or, or a number of things that you can do you, to get them released. You want them to get released. Pay, you know, perform good works, all kinds of things. Uh, pay the parish priest for a mass, all of those kinds of things. Beloved, you can speak to a Roman Catholic person through the use of the Bible. Make sure you use the Bible. Show them what Jesus said when he was on the cross, John 19.30 says this, it is finished. It's done. It's taken care of. There's no more work to be done. When Jesus said those words, he was expressing that the work that he came to do was completed. Not to be picked up by somebody else, by yourself. And that work was the redemption of believers. I got to tell you, I, I, I think of what he did do. Why? Why? Jesus expressed the same concept in his high might, uh, priestly prayer in John 17, 4. He said this, quote, I glorify you on the earth, accomplished, having accomplished the work which you have given me. 
That's what Jesus did. He accomplished the work that he was given by the Father to do. I mentioned Romans 8.1 before, but let me just say it again. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And no condemnation means that they will not be sent to a halfway house. They don't need to go to the halfway house of hell. Because Jesus didn't get the job done? 1 John 1.7, we didn't read that before when we looked at the 1 John passage, but it's 1 John 1.7, it says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Not just some, but all. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus made purification of sins. He took care of them. Beloved, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus Christ did not accomplish our full redemption. That's the issue. Roman Catholic Church desires to continue to hold a Catholic person in the grip, that's what it's saying, of need for the Roman Catholic Church for their salvation. Roman Catholic is afraid to let people know that once saved, always saved, because then they can't have control over them. Don't have control over their money, don't have control over their service, don't have control over any of those things. But those who truly saved desire to live for Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians 14, 15 says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's not about what I can do in purgatory to get me further. Biblically, through Jesus Christ, to get the job of redemption done completely, You have to trust in that work. Some of us do. Some of us don't. Some of us believe that we need to do something else. And you don't have to. Colossians 2.13 says this, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He's taking care of all of it. Your service here is not to get to heaven. Your service here is in gratitude for what he's already done. I I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again and again and again. So let's look at the doctrine of salvation. Basically, we are directed to the idea of that faith is necessary in order to trust in the complete work of Jesus Christ for us. Uh, As my friend used to say, Your faith now has sight when you get to heaven. You finally have sight. The Bible tells us that salvation is uh, is found not in a church or institution or in its sacraments, but through a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. To be saved, a Christian means uh, to have knowledge of the needs, to have uh, knowledge of the Savior and a trust in because he's uh, secured the salvation. And I said it earlier, you become a disciple. What is a disciple? You see Jesus calling his disciples. uh, You see in Matthew 10, he's got a whole bunch of disciples there. He calls them to be a follower of him, to believe in what he teaches. But not just believe in what he teaches, but in his actions, his kindness, his compassion, all of those things. That's what a Christian is. 
It's Christ-likeness. This knowledge is going to show the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone as a means of salvation, with no dependence on works for any merit of grace. Genuine faith is always illustrated by a turning from sin. I had a letter this week. It was sent to John MacArthur's office. They sent it over to me. Would you please answer this person? And they wanted to know what it took to be saved. I basically say this, turn from sin. That's what needs to happen. You go to the end of John MacArthur's study Bible, and he's got a whole thing which don't do it. Make sure you get turned from your self-satisfaction, your self-rule, and begin to embrace Christ's lordship. He's Lord of all. And that means of all aspects of your life. There shouldn't be any little hidden spot where you continue to forsake him. And with that comes the desire to give God the glory because of him working out your salvation. Because justification is totally dependent on the work of Christ, it is perfect. It is permanent. It's once for all. When an individual is justified, therefore they, that individual cannot lose grace. Cannot lose grace. They have the assurance of salvation. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 24, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is obviously Jesus speaking here, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. How could Jesus Christ, the Savior, say that if you have to go to purgatory in between? Because purgatory in between is not eternal life is partial death and then come to life, that kind of thing. So the, the Catholic Church just misses out on, on just plain old Scripture. He sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment. Oh, you mean I don't have to go into judgment and purgatory for my sins? But as pass out of death into life. You see, that's the real true life that we're looking forward to, folks, is life with Christ in heaven. The difference is that the Protestant receives justification by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. While the Roman Catholic receives grace by his assent to the truths of the Roman Catholic Church and what they teach. That's why when I, the first message I gave on the Roman Catholic Church, I told you about the priest who married my wife and I. And uh, he found out from my mother-in-law that we had left the Catholic Church. And so he started writing to me. That was before there was email. Okay. I don't even think a computer had been invented yet. So I'm writing back letters. And I'm noting scripture, scripture, scripture. He keeps coming back with tradition, tradition. Scripture, scripture, scripture. He says, obviously, you're not listening. I said... To God, I am, <laughs> not to you. You see, when you receive the sacraments of penance or Eucharist, your sins are remitted, and you have union with Christ. In other words, your works make you fit 
to be in Christ and to have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Roman Catholic is taught to come to Jesus Christ directly by salvation, for salvation, but to receive grace through the sacraments. That, that's an addition to. You can see the Roman Catholic merges the understanding of justification and sanctification. They, they put it into one. Justification is a legal declarative act on the part of God. It tells us that Jesus Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The old things have passed away. They're done. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are all reconcilers of others. We bring that truth to others. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's the answer, not purgatory, not indulgences, not worshiping the saints or venerating the saints or any of those kinds of things. This is where the Roman Catholic Church specifically gets their problem from. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is in you to work and to will his good pleasure. They're saying we have to do some works there. You're, you're working on your salvation. However, if that were true, then Titus 3.5, which I read earlier, would not be true. Then Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved, would not be true. And here's some other ones, Galatians 2.16 would not be true. Because one after another, they'd have to refute these verses as well. Galatians 2.16 says this, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. I has to refute that over and over again. There are many more. Romans 3, uh, 19 through 20, and Philippians 3, 3 through 9. Folks, there's one verse after another after another. The Philippians 2 passage comes after, it's talking about Christ, okay, uh, have this attitude in yourself, verse 5, that was in Christ Jesus, who although he regard, uh, um, was God, he did not regard himself to be God. Well, was it? Let me make sure I get that right. Um, misapplying that. Philippians 2. Uh, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself. They redo that, and that's what messes them up. When the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is not highlighted, it's not underscored, it perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, it's not even raising your hand, it's not walking the aisle. 
It's not saying you're a Christian. It's if the work has been done. When, uh, what are the implications then for a Roman Catholic? And I know we have some folks in here have talked to me. What about my Roman Catholic aunt? What about my Roman Catholic whatever? What are the implications? The implication is that they will never know if they are saved from their sin. Could you imagine living this life and not knowing that you're saved from sin? Produces a lack of assurance. Now, that doesn't come from one person, but listen to this. This lack of assurance is evident in Roman Catholic theology by the statement made by the Council of Trent. If one considers his own, quote, if one considers his own weakness and his defective disposition, he may well be fearful and anxious as to the state of grace, as nobody knows with certainty of faith which permits of no error that he has achieved the grace of God. When I was growing up in New York, we had a cardinal, Cardinal John O'Connor. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but back in the day, he was the cardinal, okay, um, in New York. He said this, and this is a quote, church teaching is that I don't know at any given moment what my eternal future will be. I can hope, pray, do my very best, but I still don't know. That was a cardinal. Could you imagine the rest of them? St. Patrick Cathedral, even though it's a huge church, they're wondering if they're going to go to heaven. And I've been there. That's a cardinal of the church. So what hope is there? There's no hope. Is the gospel spoken clearly? No. There's no gospel of grace there whatsoever. I pray, I got to tell you, I pray at least weekly that God would open up the eyes of those in the Roman Catholic Church. Friends, relatives that I have, my two brothers, my sister, open up their eyes so that they would see it. I had a little bit of an opening this week with my youngest brother. He's the baby and... And we had some discussion, but didn't get through all the way. But 1 John 5.13 says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's unmistakable, folks. If you come to Christ, you give your life to Christ, you have eternal life. You don't have to go around wondering if you still have it. I know there are people that struggle with the assurance of salvation. A very well-known pastor, he's been a pastor for, I think, 55 years, said to me once (laughs) that those who struggle with that assurance of salvation, probably the people that are saved. It's those who just are walking willy-nilly around that have not really paid attention to whether they truly are a believer or not that have a problem. Now, he wasn't declaring those that don't think about it as being unsaved, but I said, you know, that's, a, that's good. I can use that next time I meet with the guy who's got this lack of assurance. John 6, 47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Folks, that's what we want to see. It's many, many, many. Can I ask again how many 
ex-Roman Catholics we have in here. He's raised his hand up nice and high so I can see them. Folks, take a look around, okay? You can do it. It's okay. You, not, uh, yeah. he, he's very shy, very shy. And, and folks, that, that is quite a bit. If you look at Grace Church, the night that I did seven baptisms, six of them were ex-Roman Catholics. I was shocked how many are coming to faith in Christ. I believe that that door is open. There is an opportunity. These are, these are friends. These are relatives. These are co-workers that ask questions. And we want to give them as many answers as we possibly can. I always like to dialogue question and answer, not arguments. I don't need to... Dim, 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 dim. That, that doesn't help anybody. That just drives them away. But you want to ask questions and answers and... and Pray that God would open up their heart, even while you're having that discussion. But listen to what they have to say. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord God, um, thank you for their patience, uh, Lord, uh, in how long this is getting taking to get through this series. I pray, Lord God, that uh, you would use it in each person's life here, um, whether they've had a Protestant background, a... Um, Armenian background, um, uh, Hindu background, it doesn't matter, Father. This can be used for all people. I pray this in your name. Amen.